0: As you know, this week, we saw weed legalized in four new states. Arizona, that Montana, is true. New Jersey, South Dakota, all legalized recreational marijuana. The old right. Mary Jane for adults. And one of my favorite magic memories is you and I were at the the bachelor party of, of a friend of ours, a shared friend. And Yes, that is true. Uh, yeah, th- thank you for... <laughs> for <laughs> Responding in the cross examination and letting us get this all on, on the record, yep. and uh, everyone had been smoking quite a bit of weed this particular day, and I had brought some magic cards to play magic because I knew some. We were thought... also
1: drinking. We were also drinking, like we need.
0: Yeah, it was both. It was yes. both. We it were was, having yes. a great time. It yes. was all all the bachelor party things were happening. They were all yes. going down, and you know, just right alongside drugs and drinking is of course magic, and so I had brought some magic cards to share with the group and there were some people that had already played some magic and so I thought maybe I can get people excited about it and so late in the afternoon we sat down and I started explaining the rules and I got all these cards out and I was doing my whole shtick and I, I love explaining magic to people. I've taught a lot of people how to play magic and I find a, a lot of joy in sharing what I love about the game with people and I was talking, 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 just kind of going on and explaining rules and explaining stuff and then I, I looked over at some point and everyone was just kind of glazed over. I just, I had lost I lost the room and there was one <laughs> thing in particular that you were just really focused on and can you, can you tell us what that was
1: sure so when we had decided that we were gonna play a game and you suggested we play magic and I was like okay cool and you were like we I'm gonna explain it to you since you guys have never played it before so I was like all right so you started explaining it and the way you started was you set all your cards out on the tape like your boxes of cards that were all different colors and they were all like these perfectly rectangular like little colored boxes and then Mm -hmm. you started opening them and so i was just like really fixated on the fact that there were so many boxes and that all the boxes had different cards in them for different purposes and then once you open the box that's when i completely lost it because you pulled a card out and the card was not in one sleeve but the card was double sleeved
0: (laughs) and and, and what you said at the time is you said you like after i did my whole shtick you just kind of said, hold on a minute. And the first thing you said was, is every card in a little folder? And I was like, yes, in a way, every yeah, so card any, is in a little folder. So,
1: like, anything you said after the point of you pulling out one card and me realizing that it was double folded, did I do not remember. I don't even, could not even comprehend. Um, our friend Mark, or Mork, our friend, looked at us looked at me from across the table and just like mouthed like are you okay and i just mouthed <laughs> back no <laughs> and i just mouthed back no hmm. the cards are double sleeved and he was like what and i was like two sleeves i just couldn't get past it because i'm just imagining like putting cards in one sleeve And that's already, like, that's a big task. Like, Mm -hmm. putting, you know, those little, do you you remember in Beanie Babies, you had those things to, like, save the tags in case they were worth money later? You know,
0: I didn't, I (laughs) I didn't remember that, but just this past year, Hillary's dad had us go through the basement at his house and pull out a bunch of Beanie Babies, and many of them have these little plastic clamshells over the tags, to keep it from getting bent or, like, you know, the edges messed up.
1: Exactly, because in case Beanie Babies were worth something. So I remember having to put those on to my Beanie Babies and being like, this is so stupid. And it also makes them like terrible to play with because there's this sharp plastic thing. And I was like, oh, this sucks, like putting this thing. And I was just like, whoa, Andy loves his cards so much that it's not in one sleeve it's in two sleeves so it's like really protected so that when they're really worth money they're going to be in pristine condition and all of these stories were just happening in my head while you were explaining Mm -hmm. so if you asked me today to explain to someone how magic the gathering worked i would not be able to tell you how the game works but i can tell you how to protect your cards and keep them in mint condition if you choose to resale or trade
0: no magic was played that day at all I realized when that was the first question from the, from the peanut gallery that there was not going to be any magic getting played that afternoon. It was pretty abundantly clear. Hello, and welcome to Lucky Paper Radio. My name is Andy, and I'm here, as always, with my friend and co-host... He's no longer a goblin dark dweller. Now instead, he's a light wielder paladin. It's Anthony. Uh, I, don't, I don't get it. Am I supposed to get it? Anthony, you're a new homeowner. You are moving out of your little dark apartment, and you're moving into a house that is full oh. of windows. Get it? Dwelling in the dark, yeah, yeah, light wielding. Yeah.
2: yeah. I'm so excited. I, don't, I, I thought I was. that meant that I was supposed to be like a better, no, <laughs> lawful good I, I, character. I remain the I same character.
0: You, have you considered your D&D alignment?
2: I'd probably go with lawful good. Definitely lawful.
0: Hmm. 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 I don't think I'm lawful, but I think you probably are lawful.
2: Yeah, I'm too scared.
0: It's a good thing in general. Anthony, congratulations on buying a new house. It's very thank exciting. You, and uh, this house is close to me, too, so I'm also selfishly very excited. It's going to be great.
2: We can play Magic across the park.
0: I will scream out all of my plays <laughs> we could play magic across the park maybe we could you know get tested and do some pod action i don't know we'll figure it out but uh, i'm just glad you're close by and you got a new cool house to live in so congratulations to you i have a long long weekend of packing magic cards into boxes yeah are you gonna let them the moving company move your magic cards Are you gonna trust them with those precious commodities <sighs> that's what they're here for i suppose it is in the name yeah Okay, I see it. I got it. I hear you. You want to move your magic cards? Actually, how many do you have? Because I forget. You basically have you ever gotten rid of any of your magic cards?
2: Oh, of course. But it's a lot of magic cards.
0: Yeah, I pretty routinely kind of purge my whole trade binder and buy list a bunch of things. I think you are a much uh, wiser and more more sort of collectorly minded person, (laughs) and so you just tend to things tend to go into your trade binder and maybe not come out. You know. Sure, in the long run, I think it's gonna be good for you. I think it's the. I the don't know. I think, I think your your pension investor. for
2: first first edition foils is gonna pay off better than my uh
0: hoarding of uncommons. No, I mean when the whenever the floor falls out of paper magic, because I mean it can't last forever. Whenever the floor falls out, the first thing to go is gonna be the first edition rare old foils that have 850 times foil multipliers. Those are not that's, gonna hold their value when the floor falls out. Of no it. way. You don't. What you th- really think so? Who's going to need a, a Voltaic Puncher or a... Okay, yeah, the <laughs> Uncommons, sure, I hear you on that. But also, like, I just get rid of all of the sort of draft rares that I pick up in drafts or open impacts otherwise, and just turn them all into weird, old, esoteric cards. I, I think in the long run, like, just keeping all those rares is probably better than upgrading to, you know, for example, a Foil Nemesis Seal of Fire. Did you know those are like $40? Uh-huh, Cool.
2: Cool, I assume break. it's
0: because of Luris. I think I think Modern Burn plays them with Luris, and so that's why they're forty dollars, which is rude. The one I really want is the the foil seventh edition Goblin King, but for some reason, the pri- when when Muxus popped off was printed and popped off. The prices for seventh edition foil Goblin Kings went through the roof, but. There is no deck that plays Goblin King and Muxus, to my knowledge. Like, Muxus is broken in, like, Historic or Pioneer or one of those formats where Goblin King's not legal. There is no Modern Goblins. Legacy Goblins doesn't play Goblin King. Or, oh, Legacy Goblins does play Muxus, I think, but I don't think it plays Goblin King. Anyway, I don't understand why the price popped off. It seemed like it just had the word Goblin in it, so somebody bought out all the old 7th edition foils. Welcome to capitalism. Yeah. Is I mean, that's, that's, that's me. 100% it. It's just somebody thought oh, there's a small
2: chance this could be related. There's a tiny, tiny available available stock of it. So,
0: you know, a few people decide to buy them all up and that's it. I still resent that the price for Mercadian Masks foil counterspells went up when people were wildly and completely unfoundedly speculating that they were going to print counterspell in Modern Horizons 1. And then, of course, the price never went down. Like, nope, <laughs> some speculators that's not how were like... It works. Some speculators were like, ooh, maybe, you know, Counterspell will become modern legal. And so I'll buy all these $20 foils and turn them into $50 foils or whatever. And then once they, you know, paid for them, they're like, well, I'm not going to sell it for less than 50 bucks,' And so if you just leave the prices high and no one's buying them, Judge drives me crazy. Yeah.
2: I mean, if you think I have a, a lot of magic cards, I can't imagine what uh, the real speculators are, are working with.
0: Yeah, I'm sure it's just bookshelves and bookshelves and bookshelves. But you know, I'm, I've got a couple. I've got like a big cardboard box of commons I got to donate to uh, to no beyond or a local game store, or some other some other beneficiary. Maybe I'll hold on for a while and just put them in my basement and wait for, you know, a child in my life to come of age and decide they're gonna pick up pick up the magic cards. Other than that, like I'm down to like I've got my cubes, I've got my EDH decks and like one binder basically, two binders actually. I have the reserveless binder and the non reserveless binder, but. I'm keeping my collection tight, you know? Uh, Yeah, I've got the blue box, the brown box, the green box,
2: the red box, and uh, unfortunately the gold box just recently split into two boxes, and that's feeling a little bit ridiculous to me, so maybe it's time I downsize. You have more
0: gold cards than you do of any single color, or is that a smaller form factor box? Maybe we should save this for our next guest. We, we, have a, we have a guest lined up for our next episode, friends, and so uh, we will definitely save the conversation about gold cards for that episode, which is a great time to mention, Anthony. By the time this podcast comes out, by hook or by crook, our survey for Commander Legends will be out. Recurring listeners to the podcast will remember us talking about the Zendikar Rising Cube survey, and the next one is out for Commander Legends, so that will be linked in the show description, but please go there and fill it out if you are testing anything from Commander Legends. I think this is a good time to mention that you know, we, we made a decision when we built the surveys to not allow people to submit empty surveys. So if you are testing nothing from Commander Legends, you don't need to go and fill out a survey to affirm that you are, in fact, testing nothing. Um, and the, the set, from talking to people in the cube world, it seems like there are quite a few people that are not testing anything from it. So I think this will be a set where we'll get a sort of lower response rate. But that makes it even more important that if you're listening and you are testing one of these cool Monarch cards or something, that you get at us and tell us what you're testing. I think this is actually going to be a great set for peasant and pauper cubes, Anthony, because there's been a lot of very interesting downshifts and cool cards and effects printed at common or uncommon that we have not really seen before at those rarities.
2: Yeah, I also think that even though uh, a lot of people that are testing similar or playing similar cubes to our own are not interested in a lot of the cards here, I think that there's just going to be a lot of people that are building very different cubes that are going to be extremely interested.
0: So I don't know that there's less interest. I think it might just be different interest. Oh, sure. I, ho- I hope you're right. I want to see what people are doing with these cards. I just mean from talking to people on the Discord and stuff, even people that have different cubes from us, I have not seen a ton of enthusiasm for the set. But you know what? Them's the breaks. Sometimes you get a set that's great, sometimes you get a set that's not great for your cube, and that's part of the part of the fun, I think. And if you are enthusiastic about the set, let us know. Prove us wrong. Yeah, and also Proof find Andy all your other people that are... Yeah, prove me wrong. Make me look foolish. We have a thousand responses to this survey, and me looking, me looking like a pure rube is what we want. On this episode of the show, we are going to be discussing... I'm not sure quite how to put this, Anthony. We're going to be talking about how you might consider the draft portion of the gameplay experience of your cube when you are evaluating cards for inclusion in it. And I'm going to try and make the case to Anthony that I think in the cube design world, there is a a bias towards decks, basically. People think about the deck as the canonical representation of what a cube is capable of and how it plays. Like, what does a deck look like in that cube? And it's much harder to talk about the draft, and therefore a lot of important considerations for a card that would get included in a cube are oftentimes not discussed. So, stay tuned and see if Anthony agrees with that argument I make to him, or if he calls me out and also makes me look like a pure rube. But first, we are of course going to do a... Pack one, pick one from a listener-submitted cube. And our cube this week is a very interesting one. It comes to us from listener Josh. And this cube is actually kind of... Well, it's it's one cube, but it's it's two cubes on Cube Cobra because the way this cube works is that Josh has a core set of cards that is drafted, you know, every time the cube is drafted or always in sort of pool that that the cube is drafted from. And then a secondary set of cards that are basically added in more or less at random, though Josh did say he tried to balance the colors when he adds them in to make sure he adds equal amounts of, you know, white, blue, black, red, and green cards. But basically, it's a a way for Josh to get additional variants from a draft of his cube without just making the cube larger and therefore diluting all of the things that are in the sort of core of the cube. So I think it's a very interesting idea, the idea that, like, you know, here's the things that I want to be present more often, and then, then here's a set of cards that... I want to introduce occasionally and, you know, have them show up from time to time because it adds spice or variety, uh, but I don't want them there all the time. And I actually don't know, we we got a lot of context for this cube, but I don't actually really know what kinds of cards are in which sections, truly. So I'm, I'm I'm not sure why, you know, Josh would have decided to put a card in the expansion instead of the core cube. But we will do a pack one, pick one from this and see what we can glean from the cube from that pack one, pick one. So... As always, I'm going to read the pack, and what we've done here, just for full transparency, is because this cube is shuffled and composed into packs in a way that we can't do on Cube Cobra, what we've done at Josh's recommendation is taken 10 cards from the core cube and 5 cards from the set of occasional expansion cards, and then just kind of combine that together into a pack, which is not quite accurate, of course, because, you know, again, Josh tries to balance the colors, and, you know, the whole cube is shuffled up, so theoretically not every pack would have five cards from the expansion. And so I think, uh, Anthony, I'm not going to tell the listeners which cards are in the expansion or not, and we'll kind of see how that goes. The cards in the pack are Leonin Warleader, Fibblethip the Lost, Sanctum of Tranquil Light, Spitting Image, Evolution Sage, Decree of Justice, Panoptic Mirror, White Sun Zenith, Jorianne Ruin Diver, Sanctum of Calm Waters, Cloudkin Seer, Fling, Vampire Nighthawk, Necrotic Ooze, and Tinker. So, Anthony, the people need to know, what are the cards that you are looking at from this pack?
2: I think this is one of the most difficult packs we've looked at on this podcast, and I have maybe say that every week. Do I say that every week? I don't think
0: so. Some weeks you're like, I got this. This is easy peasy.
2: All right. This is not easy mode. So we have some really kind of absurd cards in terms of power level. We have Tinker. We have Panoptic Mirror. We have multiple Sanctums in the same pack. So just looking at this, I kind of just feel overwhelmed with how much information we have. At the same time, we also have just some like really strong sort of foundational cards that are just going to fit well into every deck between like Vampire Nighthawk and Cloud Concear and honestly, Leon and Warleader and then some strong synergy cards like Evolution Sage. I think looking at the main list, uh Tinker doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like a busted strategy here for sure. Like there's no huge Blightsteel Colossus I don't think to to be able to cheat in. So I think I'm going to cross out Tinker. The Sanctums really really are a struggle for me because like we do see two of them in in this pack. There are a number of them in the set. It's it's not necessarily something that really appeals to me in general, and because I don't think these are the sanctums that are really, like, the payoff sanctums, I think I'm willing to move off of those.
0: Okay, we're working our way through the pack. What else? It's, it's, what else are you thinking? This is
2: so hard. Panoptic Mirror, again, it seems like a little bit more setup, but if if aggro isn't really that supported in this format, then Panoptic Mirror might just be great.
0: Let's talk a little bit about what we can learn or glean from the cube from looking at this pack. So. Just from looking at this pack, I would have guessed that Tinker was not being played in the most unfair ways, as you mentioned. I actually have not really looked at the sort of underlying list. I'm kind of coming to these packs mostly blind. And, yeah, just, you know, the, the suite of cards I'm seeing here, I would expect that a, like, dedicated Tinker combo deck that's got, you know, ways to cheat out obscene threats would be really out of place with all the other cards we see here with you know for example a sanctum deck or something or you know a deck that is trying to play spitting image to value those cards do not match up with a tinker strategy so i would expect it to be played more fairly that said it's still a tutor that is going to let you almost certainly cheat some mana right like even if you're getting a panoptic mirror for example like if panoptic mirror is good in this environment then a panoptic mirror for three mana is probably also pretty good for this in this environment
2: true Okay, so I think I have a little bit of a feeling. So often, the way I want to approach uh, a new cube I'm not familiar with is I want to sort of shoot for something that doesn't have a that has a pretty high floor. Like I just want to build a deck that works. And if I was going that way, I would probably choose something like Leon and Warleader or Vampire Nighthawk. Like th- I think Llan and Warleader is a, an underrated card. Like it didn't have its its time in the sun, like um, Hero of Bladehold, just because of the time it was printed. It was Hero of Bladehold already existed.
0: Yeah, it's got a real Lyra Dawnbringer association, right? <laughs> True, like, yeah, like we we call it Bane Slayer Angel, not Lyra Dawnbringer, because by the time Lyra Dawnbringer was planted, that was no longer a notable thing to be. Right, but I think maybe that's the
2: wrong approach. Like, I th- I think that the way I'm feeling tonight is I really want to embrace what this cube is about. Like, I see so much that is screaming like do a high synergy, do an interesting like high ceiling, uh, shoot for the stars, live the dream kind of cube. And because of that, I think I'm gonna compromise with myself a little bit and go with Spitting Image. I think Panoptic Mirror is a little bit too far for me right now. Like, you really do kind of need to build around that. Where Spitting Image I think is kind of like, does the sort of like, extremely powerful late game, uh, repeated value engine stuff that I see happening in this pack and in the, the cube a little bit at large um, but does still have a pretty high floor uh, and is also a hybrid card, meaning we're still pretty flexible for a first pick. How do you feel about that?
0: Um, I think you're wild in a little bit. I'm not gonna lie, okay, but I, okay. uh, but I like taking it. I, I am not taking a six mana sorcery that sometimes doesn't do. Well, certainly, I, I feel like it's gonna be hard to really get six mana worth out of that card. If it's a game where you can retrace it multiple times and you know dump twelve or eighteen mana into it, then good for you. But, but yeah, I mean, I, like you said, Anthony, my default approach to a new environment, especially one like this one, where I. I think we can say with confidence, Anthony, that if we were to draft this cube a few times, we would make wildly different card evaluations from looking at this pack than we are going to now with no information, which is not always true of all cubes. Some cubes have a lot of familiar cards and familiar archetypes to me, and so I feel pretty confident in making assertion about what seems good and what doesn't. But to your point here, I think that, you know, maybe the Sanctum deck is just great, and you're supposed to, you know, take one Sanctum wheel the other one or something like it. I, I don't really know. So, with that information, I'm going to take something that is reliable, and the cards I'm looking at are ones you've mentioned, like Leon and War Leader. I actually really like Fibblethip and Cloud Concealer quite a bit, quite a bit more than Vampire Nighthawk, I'll say. So it's really like those cards I'm looking at. Decree of Justice, I think, is also a very powerful, potent card, especially when games are a little slower. I think from looking at this pack that there is a sort of creature-token theme going on, and the reason I'm happy taking Leon and War Leader is because that happens to be a card that lines up with a quote-unquote theme, but very importantly for me, the baseline is incredible. If you had no other token makers and no benefit from making tokens in your deck, you're still very happy to play a Leon and War Leader in, in most environments, just as a 4-4 four, that four snowballs out of control. So I'm going to take War Leader and maybe go a token thing, maybe just go some kind of mid-range pile. I'm not quite sure yet, but, but that's where I'm at.
2: Yeah, I think War Leader is definitely a, a very safe choice here. Uh and and like I said, I'm I'm sort of fighting against my <laughs> Yeah,
0: I think uh, you made a nice safe choice, you coward, but good safe know.
2: choice. But I wanna I wanna embrace like like look at this pack. This this pack just says do ridiculous stuff. And even in that context, like Cloud Cancer and FibbleTip, like I want those in the deck with Spitting image, but uh it's it's not necessarily where
0: I wanna start. I, I appreciate your your willingness to lean into what the cube is trying to get you to do. And uh, and to that end, I wonder, like, one of the cards that stands out most to me here is Necrotic Ooze, which, uh, for those of you not familiar, that's two black-black for a 4-3 creature ooze. And it has the ability, as long as Necrotic Ooze is on the battlefield, it has all activated abilities of all creature cards in all graveyards. And it's a very weird card that most people, if you're familiar with it, either you're familiar with it through EDH or you're familiar with it through some weird, convoluted, broken combos where you can get you know, a Pili Pala in your graveyard and something has a tap ability and kind of go off and and do something. So that's a card that I would be very surprised if I was able to draft a Necrotic Ooze deck in this environment. And from looking at this pack, there is no creature with an activated ability in the pack. So I'm not getting the sense that there's going to be tons of activated abilities running around everywhere. But if I was trying to just like, you know, do the sweetest thing, I would maybe be looking at Necrotic Ooze.
2: Fair enough. I do have to give a little bit of credit as well to Jory and Rune Diver. I think this is just a really sweet card design. Whenever you cast your second spell, you draw a card. It's a three-minute two-three. Everyone loves it. Relevant creature tribes for Definitely. all kinds of decks. Uh, I don't want to start with a gold card that isn't like head and shoulders above the rest of the pack, but I do really like this card, and it's it's been uh, personally a real struggle that I'm probably going to have to cut it from my uh, Wizard EDH deck, because they keep Printing busted wizards, and I just can't find room for all of them. RIP to a real With one. Dear Julian. wizards, stop making
0: such good wizards. I don't have room for you all. It's right in the name. They have to. The one last thing I want to know about this pack before we move on to our normal discussion is just that we see no fixing in this pack, which of course could be a total coincidence, but seeing a lot of cards like this and no fixing, like by cards like this I mean, you know, I don't see anything in this pack that indicates that it would be very strong in an aggro deck. So I'm expecting that pure aggression is not going to be the strategy here. There's a lot of cards that clearly have a high ceiling if built around or if in the sort of right context. And so I'm expecting this is going to play in a way where you're kind of battling your opponent to build the like cool value engine that will be better than whatever value engine they're going to build. Like basically make your card synergies work in a way that overpowers whatever your opponent's trying to do. And in an environment like that, uh, with very little fixing, uh, that will change how how my future picks play out. If, if I get, you know, four picks into this cube and I've still seen no fixing, uh, I will be very likely to try and commit very hard to just whatever color seems open and stick with that as opposed to what I might normally do in a cube like this, which is just kind of take, for the first half a pack, just take the coolest, best card of every pack and see where I ended up and then kind of go from there and maybe plan to, you know, play three colors or a greedy splash or something because of the lack of aggro. But yeah, with, with no fixing, that does get harder or very little fixing, which I can maybe presume there is not that much fixing from looking at this pack.
2: It sounds like what you're saying is that a single card which enables itself without building around it uh, and basically fixes for itself by being hybrid is uh, the right place to be for this pick.
0: Okay, how does spinning image enable itself? You need a creature worth copying. <laughs> Any Otherwise, creature. do anything. Any creature. Come yeah, on, Yeah, but we'll you're going to play creatures. against the token deck. You're going to play against, you There's know, no
2: There's no removal in this pack.
0: We're going to be fine. You're going to play against me, and I'm just going to do nothing until turn 10. I'm going to cast a White Sun Zenith and make seven 2-2 cat creature tokens, and now it's like, all right, you want to pay six mana for your own 2-2? That's all you can do. It's only one way to settle this, Anthony. We've got to draft this cube. I'm ready. All right. Thank you, Josh, for sending in the pack. I think this is very interesting. I I really like Josh's approach to adding more variance to the draft and the cube without just making it larger and larger and larger and to, to no end. So I think it's a very interesting approach, and I'm grateful to have done a pack from it. If you want to have your cube featured on Lucky Paper Radio... That can happen. That can happen for you. We, can be, we make dreams come true here. Just send it to us via email at mail at and include your pronouns and how you want to be credited, and we will add it to our big old spreadsheet of cubes to do a pack from in the future. On to the main topic now, Anthony. Here is a theory I want to propose to you, and I want you to either poke holes in it or fawn all over me and tell me I'm brilliant. Those are your two options. I think that in the cube design world and community, that people that are designing cubes have a strong bias towards thinking about their cube as an sort of amalgamation of decks, right? Like the way that most of us play our cubes is you sit down, you draft some number of packs and some configuration, and then you build a deck and you have a sideboard. And I think that when many people are evaluating cards that are going to go into their cube... They are thinking about that end state, right? Here's my deck. What cards do I wish I had in this deck? What cards do I wish I had in my sideboard? Do they kind of think in that sort of way? I think this is manifested in the way that like people oftentimes talk about their deck is their their cube is having like two color archetypes, like my blue white is blink and my black red is aristocrats. I think what people are doing there is describing a deck they intend for people to draft, and that's how they end up thinking about their cube. Like the deck is kind of the the transferable unit and the draft which is a other component of playing the cube right the cube always takes these multiple components you draft from the packs you build a deck and then you play the games and i think those second two things end up getting a lot more attention from cube designers because if you, you know, lose a game because your opponent casts some card, then you're going to be like, well, that card's too good and you want to cut it. Or if you felt like something was unbeatable or the cards in your hand couldn't keep up in the gameplay, then you would sort of evaluate them poorly. If you build your deck and you're unhappy with your curve, you might start thinking about adjusting your cube to sort of change the curve. But I don't feel like people are ever making decisions really about draft picks, right? Like people aren't looking at a pack and saying, well... Based on this pack and like and this way this draft is going, I need to sort of reevaluate cards for my cube. Does that argument make any sense, Anthony? Uh, what were the two
2: options again?
0: Well, I, as I was talking through it, I actually think it's three, and so like the kind of three let's call them three spheres in which people evaluate cards for their cube are as the card affects the draft of the cube, as the card affects the decks that are built from the cube, and as the card affects the gameplay of the cube. I think those second two spheres, how a card goes into a deck or doesn't go into a deck, and how a card actually plays out over the course of a game, get almost all of the attention from cube designers when they're evaluating cards. And the question of how does this card affect the draft of my cube is often overlooked on account of the fact that the draft of those three things is something that happens with private information, right? I mean, you could basically, if you're drafting digitally, you could download draft logs and review them if you wanted to after the draft and get some insight into this experience. But frankly, very few people do that. And when you do, draft logs are there's a ton of data. I mean, how many cards do you see over the course of a draft, right? Like, I guess 15 plus 14 plus 13. You see, like, so many cards that it's, uh, it's a lot of data to sort of digest. It's not as easy as digesting just a screenshot of a deck or just looking at, you know, the record or, you know, a game state of something. Because I think the draft is so opaque to the cube designer and so variable because the packs are always different, I think it's something that people oftentimes write off and basically don't consider when they are adding cards to their cube or removing cards from their cube.
2: That's all great. I did mean, what are my
0: two options uh, between, I think it was you being a complete idiot and you being a genius? No, I wanted you to either poke holes in this idea and you know kind of help me work through it, or just fawn all over me and tell me I'm great. Hmm. I guess I'm gonna have to poke holes in it then. Um, Woo! It'd be fun if you said if you just said I was great and we just said it, and that was the episode and we hang up and it's 25 minutes. I, long. I
2: always wish we'll do that sometime. So I I struggle with your the sort of question you've posed because the question really is is this undervalued uh and i don't have feel like i have enough experience with like what the cube community is to say it's undervalued or not i can definitely say i think that it is extremely important it's something i think about a lot when i'm designing my own cube
0: but is it really undervalued like how do you defend that sure yeah i definitely can't I definitely can't suggest that I represent the cube community as a whole, or I have good insight into what the sort of huge breadth of cube designers out there are doing. But just in all the conversations I see, I I don't see it discussed very often. Maybe I'm interested to hear, Anthony, what are the considerations that pertain to the draft specifically that you are thinking about oftentimes for your cube?
2: I mean, what's great about drafting is that you have a lot of choices and they're not, well, they're actual choices. So, uh, I actually, LSV was just talking about this on a recent episode of LR. I forget, it might not have been the recent episode. I have not been good about podcasts recently. Like, what's fun about drafting is that your pick order changes as the draft goes on. It's not just a matter of, like, memorize this pick order of here's the cards and power level and just take the most powerful card out of the pack, or even, like, take the most powerful card in the pack and weigh that against, like, what colors you're sort of falling into. So that's, like, the easiest way that I think about the draft format, is just, like, I want to include as many build-arounds as possible, and even, like, small build-arounds and little things that'll pull you into one direction or another, so that your pick order really can change, and you can build a lot of unique novel decks. It's not just a matter of saying, yep, you're drafting, you know, blue-red, so you're gonna get the blue-red deck that cares only about spells... Maybe you'll be the blue-red deck that cares a little bit more about historic things or artifacts or, you know, drawing two cards a turn. And the fact that you can find these nuanced pathways through the draft, uh, that's a lot of fun to me.
0: So I agree, and that's actually one of the things that I have called out here. I made a little sort of note for myself of the things I wanted to touch on about considerations as pertain to the draft when you're making decisions about cards in your cube. And this is one of them, that basically the degree to which you want to enable players to take a risk at the chance of being rewarded by drafting something that requires some internal synergy versus how much you want to minimize that by including cards that only have very high floors and you maybe don't have as much sort of novel interactions with one another. I I do want to push back a little bit on the idea that this is something you really have any control over as a cube designer because I think sometimes when we talk about this, it's very easy to paint... The alternative with a broad brush and just kind of be like, well, you know, if your cube just has nothing but lightning bolts and, you know, aggro creatures in it or whatever, or if it's quote unquote really on rails and there's just a single blue white deck that has all the blink creatures and every card is just blink or blink related, then, you know, the draft is all of a sudden on rails. And I, I think that's overstated a lot because even if that is the case, right, even if your cube is full of a ton of redundant effects that are very simple, or even if your cube is full of very clearly delineated archetypes in color pairs that offer you very little room to splash for something, or you know, build a deck of that color pair that has a different strategy. There is still a ton of decisions that are made when you are looking at a pack versus the how do I prioritize removal in my color pair versus this medium-powered you know four drop, or how do I prioritize my curve, or how do I prioritize other factors that are not just this build-around kind of synergy.
2: Oh, totally. And when we're talking about uh, cube design, like, we are not talking about... Or not cube design, but cube playing. Uh, we're not talking about solve formats. We're not talking about formats that have had the serious spikes putting in the reps to figure out what those archetypes are. Even if the designer intends for certain things to be viable, that might not even be the case. I mean, I just think back to, like, the, the limited formats that felt most on Rails, like, what what, what are we talking about? Rivals of Ixalan or or regular Ixalan and uh, Amonkhet. And it still took a dozen drafts to really feel like, okay, now I'm kind of just seeing the same thing over
0: and over, or more. I, I, I think that we can really easily overstate that risk. I, I want to go a step even further than that, though, and suggest that putting a bunch of, like, quote-unquote build-arounds in your cube may not necessarily increase the amount that your pick priorities would change from pack to pack. Any more than again, just having nothing but redundant effects in the cube. Because again, the building a deck is so much more than just picking the cards that are in those color pairs or in that archetype. There's, there's a question of curve and all these other things that are present, kind of by the nature of the game.
2: But but they lead they lead you in a more fun direction. It's not just a matter of like, okay, I'm drafting the mono red deck. I need a balance of removal and efficient creatures. So like, get there. It's like ooh, I drafted this one card, and it was one card that took up not much space in the cube, but now it means I get to really prioritize and and profit off of these certain other effects that other players might be undervaluing because it doesn't matter to them, uh, and opens up just a completely different experience. We can talk about just cards that are good and then cards that are build-arounds, but everything is on a spectrum. Right. All cards have a
0: floor and a ceiling. And all cards are only able to be evaluated within a context. And what you are doing when you are drafting is you are building the context in which all of your cards will be evaluated, right? And the obvious examples are like a single goblin guide in your deck that only has three drop creatures in addition to it is bad. In most formats, having a board wipe in a deck that's also all creatures is not going to be great either. So, there is... what What I'm suggesting is that because of that inherent variability in the draft and the fact that you are building that context on the fly, that That's true no matter what the sort of nature of your card interactions internally look like.
2: So the spectrum affects all cards differently. Like, some cards have a floor and a ceiling that are very close together, uh, and some that are extremely disparate. And it's very easy for us to, you know, we're too inclined to be binary about things and say, like, well, some things are just good cards, and some things are build-arounds. And really what we're talking about is just the two ends of a a different spectrum, which is that... Uh, some cards have a floor and a ceiling that are very close together and some that are very far apart. But a lot of them fall in the middle as well. And those kinds of middle spaces are really where it's most like appealing and offers the most diversity and sort of complex draft decisions where cards might be playable in a lot of contexts and you can just put it in your deck and it's going to be fine, but where you can build around it a little bit and support it a little bit and really maximize it. To me, that's really interesting, and I think you can actually create an environment where you have really complex draft experience and that's
0: that's honestly what i try and pursue in my own cube that makes sense i don't want to get too bogged down in this point specifically because overall i agree with you all i wanted to basically say is that i do think that the other extreme the idea of a cube where the draft is quote-unquote simple for whatever reason either because and i i I frankly i mostly see this criticism levied against cubes that have a lot of redundancy where it's like this cube has. Twelve lightning strikes and 12 one mana mana dorks and you know, therefore the draft is very easy because you just every card is good and no card requires building around to make effective, and so you just take good cards and you have a deck. And I, I think it's really oversimplifying how complicated a draft is, even when you don't have to think about this extra layer of, you know, internal interactions between cards and like, you know, synergies to, to maximize them. Just because drafting is hard as a matter of course and complicated as a matter of course.
2: I mean, I think you're totally right that, like, to truly maximize that kind of environment uh, and figure out just what the right balance of those kinds of effects is, get your curve just right, that's still extremely difficult. Like, Magic is a deep, deep game. But you can apply simpler heuristics to drafting a certain deck in those contexts where you can feel like it's sort of solved much more quickly. And especially, like, make it feel more solved in a length of time or in a number of drafts where even if you haven't really maximized it, you've sort of gotten your maximum joy from it.
0: Uh, And that's, you know, anything beyond that just doesn't really matter that much. Another example of this, I think maybe examples are the best way to talk about this, this set of ideas I'm interested in discussing. So another example of this is I have often felt like there are viable decks in my cube where if you took my cube list and just said, all right, build a deck out of it, you could construct a very compelling, powerful deck that would perform well in any, you know, eight-person pod. But that deck doesn't have any clear way in to draft it. It, it, it lacks a, a strong signpost card that, you know, pulls you into it. It lacks a power outlier that is really good in this deck and not good in other decks that have similar colors. It lacks some way to get into it, and therefore... This deck, which is otherwise very, very good, right, like you would would argue is supported by the cube, just never gets drafted, and I think that's a very real thing that can happen in in a cube, is you have cards that you could theoretically assemble together in a deck that is successful, but will never realistically be drafted that way because of the way a draft is navigated.
2: So, weird question. We're talking about build-arounds as a way to offer a lot of depth to a format where you can say, okay, we can do the first five drafts and kind of figure out what each of the color pairs are doing, but for the player that's on their tenth draft, they can say, ooh, well, I have, like, these two cards that care about X, now I can tweak it a little bit. Maybe the problem of there being archetypes that just aren't that appealing because they don't have those signpost cards is just that we haven't
0: drafted cubes enough. I mean, uh, What I'm saying is, we should
2: play more Magic. (laughs) That's the answer to all I, problems with magic.
0: I'm always down to play more magic. And, uh, I, you know, I, we don't have to couch... I, I think we're, we're always skating a line on this show, right? Because what we're talking about is our individual parochial experience playing cube. And that is limited to our experience. It's biased inherently. And so it's entirely possible that even though I've had let's say, like, three to four completely different play groups of people at different times draft my cube, and even though the cube has changed over the years and whatnot, it's entirely possible that if you were to take my main cube and have it be drafted by everybody across the world, that actually this deck that I'm saying is good, that I never observed being drafted, it does come up. People do draft it successfully, it's just that I happen to be playing with all people that don't have a way into that deck and don't sort of see it. But, I would posit that, like, if we, if we just kind of step away from the the anecdotal experience of an individual draft, I think you can make a logical argument for why that could happen. And that's the argument I just made, right? Like, you could have... And we've talked about Black Aggro on the show before. I think that's a decent example. I think there are plenty of other kinds of decks, the color combinations even, that very rarely get drafted in my cube. And I think it's because those color combinations lack a card to make you want to play that color combination over something else. Even though those two colors are still very effective together. The other example we've mentioned on the show before, which I'll bring up again, is that before Oko was printed, people never draft blue-green in my cube. Never did. I I basically never saw a blue-green deck. It almost never happened. And I think it was because blue-green lacked the tools or lacked the sort of big, bright beacons to say you should be playing blue green if you were playing green you're more likely to just be mono green or you know splash for red or white or something and if you were playing blue you were going to be a control deck and be blue white or blue black and there just wasn't a good reason to be playing that color combination even though it was perfectly viable because when i added oko to my cube as i've said on the show before there was always every single draft a blue green draft deck no matter what and that deck did very, very well, even though in many games it never drew Oko. Like, Oko was not carrying the whole deck. It's not that that deck needs Oko to be good. It's just that it needs Oko to be drafted. I just, I've, I've observed that a lot, and I think that's something I think about now when I'm trying to imagine an archetype or a kind of deck I want players to be able to draft. One of the things I'm thinking about are what are the ways that someone ends up drafting this? What are the cards I see four picks in or five picks into the first pack that I think, okay, this is what I should be doing. I should be drafting this deck. And there are decks I can't, I still don't have an answer for, right? Like, I, I can't think of a good reason why someone would end up choosing to draft a black-red aggro deck in my cube, even though I think it would be perfectly powerful and could do really, really well. It's just that people aren't going to go like, well, I got a Thoughtseize and I got a Goblin Guide, so I guess I'm black-red aggro because both those cards would more quickly pull you into other directions. So you think this is just a question of gold cards? I think gold cards is one of the easiest ways to... the eat the brightest examples of it, but no, I think this is true of, of everything. So just like and a, a highly it. synergistic monocolored card would, would play the same role in your mind? Not even necessarily highly synergistic. So another thing that happens that I've observed in cube draft is very oftentimes you can, you can see a pattern of an individual color being split up amongst more drafters than other individual colors. You've noted before that basically any, anytime anyone drafts your cube, there's like five blue decks at, at the table, which is something you've observed about your own cube before. And Excellent. of course, that could be anecdotal. But I honestly think what that could come down to is just that that color has more cards in that sort of color column that feel like they are a signal that color is open. And so the result is just that that color is spread out more. It's not that... Those decks are better for having a little bit of blue in them or whatever It's just that those cards felt like signals in the packs and I was doing a little thought thought exercise, and I think i I do like to avoid binaries because as as you mentioned before, like almost everything in magic is a spectrum, and to ever like put something into a binary bucket is not particularly productive but one example where I think it is kind of useful, and I do subconsciously put things into kind of binaries in my head is that I could tell you for any given card in my cube pretty quickly and just intuitively. Whether or not I would consider that card a signal that that color is open versus a card I would just expect to get in that color pair once I was already established in that color pair you know like basically the difference between like uh, a or a B in the limited resources you know card grade or c or c or below and I, for me at least obviously this is like my own evaluation my players oftentimes don't agree with me but there, are, I can tell you very clearly in a vacuum, like, yes, I would consider a one-mana mana dork to be a reason to be green, or I would consider Counterspell a reason to be blue, or Thoughtseize a reason to be black, but I would never consider Nightpack Ambusher a reason to be green, even though the card's perfectly great. That's a card I expect to get once I'm already in green, not a card that's going to pull me into green. And I, I do think if I was to go through my entire cube, there would be colors that just had more cards that would be that were a reason to be that color, and I think if you then had everyone in your playgroup do that experiment, you could come up with some sort of visualization and say, like, well, based on all this data, this color is going to get split up way more often in the draft. Regardless of how good, again, this is why I say it's different from the question of decks, because you can say, well, my cube has all the tools for a blue-black control deck, but if blue and black both both have lots of cards that are going to signal to your drafters based on their own subjective card evaluations that that color is open and they should be playing it, then no one's ever going to be able to draft all the pieces of the blue-black control deck, no matter how supported it is, because it's going to be split up amongst many players.
2: So is it a matter of those cards being appealing, or those cards just also being flexible enough that a player might say, like, for example, uh, someone might just say, like, oh, Cloud Kinseer in this pack we were looking at before is just a a good flexible card. Even if I'm, like, blue-green or blue-white, I'm happy to play this. So maybe get split up more because the
0: color is more flexible. I think flexibility is correlated with it, but not causally. Like, Cloud Concealer is a perfectly fine card. I would never put it in this category, in basically any cube. Like, Cloud Concealer is not going to convince me to draft blue in a pauper cube, even though it's a strong card in that environment. So, like, for me, oftentimes it is more flexible cards, because they are, safer early picks, because maybe that card is signaling you want to be in this color, but it turns out that it's not entirely open, but you still want to have a card that might flexibly go in some other strategy but I would also put cards like Raffaello's in this category. You know, that's a card that is very oh. committal. It's double green. It's all about ramp. But that's a card that if I see early on in the packs, I'm like, well, this is a card that will make me want to be green is a card like Raffaello's. And so it's a it's a balance, I think, between like raw power and flexibility and like all the sort of aspects of card evaluation. But some of them just cross over a threshold where it's like now this is a reason to be playing this color versus not. And I do genuinely think that trying to strike some kind of balance between how many cards do we have in each color that make you want to be that color is somewhat important. And this is, of course, it's not a paradox, but you will never really know what your players, how your players break down that exact same binary for your own cube. And so you're doing a little bit of speculation and trying to do your, your best guess, basically.
2: So wait, I'm not sure I totally follow. So you're saying some colors have certain cards that are, you know, each color will have specific cards that signal that that color is open, right?
0: Yeah, and I, I want to be hesitant to say open just because I... Yeah, open I, I is think a the very, idea, very fraught term, but... It is, and we've talked about this in the, in the context of, like, team draft, but I think the idea of something being open in cube is way harder to derive than in regular limited, where we get that term from, because, right. you know, if you get a bomb rare, you know, pick three in the second pack, then yeah, you definitely, your people passing you are not in that color. But in cube, this sort of margins are so much narrower and there's so much room for just different interpretation of what constitutes a bomb that the idea of getting a true signal of something being open, I think is, is harder to say. My terminology is just a card that will be good enough for me to commit to that color versus get ruled out by just some generic, flexible, colorless thing or be a card I expect to pick up later on
2: uh so then i'm not totally sure i follow so you're saying we have these cards that are commitment worthy cards uh that are at the top of the 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 cube list but there's always going to be a top of the cube list so what is what are we trying to solve here
0: well what i'm suggesting here is that theoretically i think if looking at two mono colors in your in your cube looking at blue and, and red if you have three times as many cards that are commitment-worthy in blue than you have in red, and let's just assume right now we're talking about, on average, across all possible drafters of this cube at all time, then you're ending up in a situation where something like mono-red is going to be very draftable, even if it's overpowered, because even though all the cards are good, none of them are quote-unquote commitment-worthy, and you're going to have a situation where blue decks are going to be very difficult to draft, even though it has a bunch of great cards in it, because we just established it has three times as many commitment-worthy cards, but if that's the case, then Players are gonna be fighting for those cards and splitting that color up a bunch. I think this I I chose that example for a reason. I think this happens in like the MTGO Vintage Cube all the time. There are tons of very, very good red cards, but unless you are a player that likes to force mono red aggro, for most people that are playing like the MTGO vintage cube, there are not that many cards that are gonna say, like, ooh, I'm gonna play aggro now because I saw this card, right? There's maybe like one or two, maybe. Uh, But it's mostly like your deck is just full of all that C stuff. And (laughs) the fact that your deck is full of the C stuff and it's very consistent makes it better than all the decks that are fighting for all those commitment level cards.
2: Okay, so wait, you're saying that we could have two colors that are equally powerful, like perfectly in balance, but one of them has more commitment worthy cards.
0: Yes. Does
2: that make sense?
0: I guess what I'm trying to point out is that there are so many ways you can think about how a cube could theoretically be in balance. And I think what people mostly mean when they say that is that the decks that people draft are evenly matched against one another, or they mean that the individual power level of all the cards across the cube is equally distributed. And those two things are very different because of the draft component of playing a cube. And so they have very different applications and meanings when you're thinking about evaluating a card for inclusion or for exclusion. Interesting. Have I lost you? Am I? Am I just? Am I just raving? Am I like old man? Screams at cloud.
2: Yeah, scream! Scream at this cloud one more time.
1: <laughs> <Who's> laughing now. <laughs> it, shut up.
0: Well, let me give another example. So we've talked about how a theoretically viable deck might have no means to, to draft it. I actually think the the opposite of that is more often discussed in the cube world, which is "quote unquote" a trap, which is like a card that you see in a pack and you think. This is a commitment-worthy card. It's so good, I'm going to commit to it. And then you just can't assemble that deck because that deck is not actually viably supported, and so you get tricked. Traps are the thing that we, we I think a lot of people have language to describe. People don't often have language to describe this other thing, which is this like ghost deck that is present, but players are unlikely to draft because if they're looking at a pack mm. they are more likely to take a higher commitment card that goes in some other deck than they are to take a bread and butter card for this deck that is viable or that lacks those commitment cards
2: yeah I, I wish we had a better word for commitment worthy but
0: i think that's a better concept than just saying like a bomb because it's not always bombs it, like the the quote-unquote bombs in like my green section the most powerful cards are actually not the cards that are going to get me to commit to green because i think my good green decks need a certain density of very efficient ramp, and they don't really need any given finisher. They just they can pick them up and they can there's right. more flexibility there. So like Nissa Who Shakes the World is probably my best bomb, quote unquote, in green, but that's lower down on the list of cards that are gonna make me be interested in drafting green behind basically all of my one mana ramp across all the different card types.
2: If we want to get into semantics, I think it's weird that. I think even though we're talking about these cards that want to make you commit, it's in fact the other kinds of cards that actually require more commitment in order for them to work. How do you mean? Like, if you want to draft mono-red aggro, you just have to commit to taking all of the mono-red aggro pieces. Like, it just requires uh, a certain critical mass of powerful cards. Whereas you might say, like, well, here's this good blue card that just will fit into lots of places, but... I'm willing to take it because I know it's going to be flexible. So it's almost like the cards that are in this commitment-worthy category that are actually
0: the least commitment are the most appealing. Yeah, well, the quote-unquote drafting the hard way strategy is all about not getting overly married or committed to your early picks and waiting to see what kind of commitment-worthy things come down the road later on in the packs, right? And so if you're, like, drafting to stay open, as it were... And, you know, you first pick a Time Walk, because Time Walk's broken, and it's a powerful blue card. And then you second pick a Thought Seize, and then you, you know, third pick a Lightning Bolt or something. In that fourth pack, you know, if you see a Goblin Guide, I think most players are not going to be willing to abandon Time Walk Thought Seize to draft Mono Red, because Goblin Guide, for as good as it is, just is, for most people, like, it just feels like Goblin Guide is not as compelling a reason to, like, just commit and and go all in on that deck. I think most people that end up drafting aggro in most cubes have some kind of predilection for it. They really like playing aggro, and so they're the kind of person that takes pride in taking that, you know, fourth-pick goblin guide and ignoring their power they had, they got, you know, first pick, versus somebody that is trying to draft the hard way in cube, which, again, I, I think sometimes all of these ideas we have about playing normal limited don't really apply well to cube. And I think, honestly, drafting the quote-unquote hard way is another one that doesn't really map perfectly to the cube world.
2: I was I was actually going to ask you that specifically, if you think that makes sense in the Bond Magic cube. Because it's actually something well, that I I do want, like, I, I strategic or not strategically, I, as a cube designer, want that to be a factor. Like, I don't know how successful I am, but I would like drafting the hard way to be a good strategy in my cube.
0: Yeah, I think this is like Signals, which we talked about. I think it's like some of the things we talked about with the team draft and trying to paint draft. I think because in most cubes, there is a narrower band of power level. While these ideas theoretically still apply, you still can draft the hard way and wait and see what's open. What is actually open is going to be way less evident to you because of those other concerns. I mean, the last time I got to play my cube in paper, which was now like nine months ago... I got a fourth pick, Birds of Paradise, and I was like, green literally has to be open. Like, this is, this is the best signal I could have got. I threw away my first four picks or three picks, which were in totally different colors, and was just like, I'm going to draft green now. And it turned out that the person that passed me that pack had taken Raffaello's out of the pack (laughs) instead. And I'm not sure what the first two people took. Uh, Some other cards, maybe they didn't like Birds of Paradise or thought thought it wasn't as good as I think it is. I think Birds is better than Raffaello's personally, but this other player had a slightly different card evaluation than me. And so I basically, like, I thought that was as close to a rock-solid signal as I ever going to get in my cube, and it was completely wrong. And that's the kind of thing that I don't think happens in regular Limited. Like, you get the third pick glory bringer and amenket limited and you know for a fact that the two people passing to you are not playing red and you would never happen to get that pack one pick one obviously because that wouldn't happen pack one but pack 2 that's a dead to rights signal that red is completely open you know otherwise you know talking about just getting very high value removal spells or you know other kinds of less rare but still very very potent effects in a limited draft like is a much better signal that that is actually open and allows you to actually apply the idea of drafting the hard way more effectively than it, than you can in Cube, I think.
2: Alright, you preempted all my questions.
0: Anecdotally, I from watching a lot of cube drafters or like, streamers play cubes on their Twitch streams sorry, or on sorry. YouTube did, videos. Did you say extremers? I said streamers. Oh, okay.
2: I'm gonna be the first extremer.
0: Blaze that territory, man. Draft from watching Draft Cube while snowboarding. Draft Cube with a GoPro attached to your head. <laughs> and while slamming monster energy drink
2: Parkour! 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 Extreme! Parkour! Parkour!
0: from watching a lot of successful players draft cube on mtgo people like lsv people like caleb gannon people like caleb durward and new Mata-nummy, these players are not really drafting the hard way. Like, I, I've never really seen them do anything that resembles drafting the hard way. They're usually like, well, this card's great, we're going in, and they just commit immediately to something and kind of force it, and it works out great. Or they, even to say before the draft, like, we're drafting aggro no matter what, and they just draft aggro and it works out fine, which I don't think works in normal limited the same way it does in cube, just because of, that again, that greater band of power level difference.
2: Yeah, I think your point that the uh, the broader... Band of power level does mean you can get some much clearer signals. Like when you when you get the powerful uncommon in a color, you can be more confident that there wasn't just a duplicate in the pack. And I think that's sort of related to the fact that uh, standard Magic packs are, are collated in a way to some degree. You're not going to get like four great cards the same color, yeah. uh, Like you will have in Cube. Like I, I, th- I think those are all related.
0: That, that that's a very good reason. I mean, just the fact that if we take foils out of the equation, which does add some additional variance, like you are never going to have three bomb rares in a pack. It's never going to happen. So like if you get something fourth pick, then you can, or third pick, you can pretty easily work through, well, like if this is still off in the pack, someone must have just taken an incredible bomb rare and one of these Mythic Uncommons because this is the best common removal spell. It's incredible. And so basically I just, I can kind of know what my opponents took or at least the kinds of things they might've taken, which you can never do in a cube. It's just not possible unless you're collating packs the same way.
2: Do you think that another aspect that contributes is just the fact that cube is in no way optimized the same way limited or, you know, a, a lot of other formats are optimized. Like people are not trying to sit down at the pro tour and draft cube optimally. And, and they're just like sitting down and having a good time. So maybe that's also just a facet of it being kind of a casual format. There are a lot of players that are trying to optimize cube draft. Like especially when you're talking about streamers,
0: yeah, yeah. So certainly, you know, the streamer thing. Sometimes they're hamming it up to be entertaining, right? And there's definitely a difference between trying to draft this cube to win versus trying to draft this cube to make an interesting, entertaining, informative video or whatever.
2: Well, I don't think you can even say sometimes. Like, and this is not a criticism, but you don't want to see somebody. Well, maybe that's not true. Does somebody want to sit down and watch somebody draft the same deck that they think is the optimal deck eight times in a row? Probably not.
0: What I will say is I think there are a lot of players that are trying to optimize cube draft in the abstract. And, you know, one person I can point to, which we mentioned on the show last week, is Jonathan Brostoff, Mm -hmm. J-Bro, in preparation for the SCG CubeCon event, which had a bunch of qualifying drafts of a pauper cube, I believe it was. And if you won one of the qualifying drafts, then you got to be qualified for the final a player draft of a like fully powered vintage cube. And Jonathan really wanted to win this event and spent a bunch of time drafting and practicing and building different like decks and pools from the pauper list to try and optimize and win that cube draft. And so like there are people out there that are definitely like trying to win at all costs. And I I still don't think that drafting the hard way is necessarily the way to do it. Like, well that almost, almost think, that
2: almost reinforces my thought that if Jonathan is a a big fish in a small pond where he knows what the best deck is, of course he can force it. Like, if other people are not optimizing it and putting in the prep that he is, he can just sit down and force the best deck. Whereas drafting the hard way is really at its best when everyone is, you know, at that same level and really trying to optimize the draft and trying to understand what is most open and what other players are not trying to draft will pay
0: off the most. There is also a lot more variance just in the card pool available in a normal booster draft versus a cube draft. Even in formats that have a very strong color pair or something, I don't think that being the quote-unquote best deck in that format is comparable to saying this cube has a really overpowered deck that is draftable in it, because you know you're going to open every piece of that overpowered cube deck. The question is just, can you get them? Whereas even a very powerful color pair in a normal limited set, you just might get a weird... Set of packs that don't have a lot of great cards in, in that color pair.
2: True. So, uh drafting cube is hard? Is that the summary?
0: Yeah, we've been going around in circles. I have one other example here, and then maybe we can try and put a nice bow on this thing. So, the last example I had of just, again, how you might think about the draft specifically when choosing which cards to put in your cube is I include some cards in my cube that. I fully acknowledge are never better than like a C or a D in any deck they end up in, but are flexible and open enough picks that I like having them present for the draft portion because they allow my players to basically choose the option of none of these cards in this pack are worth committing to anything. So I'm going to take this open, flexible thing instead of something committal because I've made that sort of evaluation. I think if those cards aren't present, then players are basically just forced to default to, okay, well, none of these cards are really worth committing, but I have to commit to something because I have no other alternative, so I'll just take whichever one I think is the the least offensive or the, the the best of these cards that I still don't think are good enough to be taking at this stage of the draft. And the best thing that I can give of this is the Triomes in my own cube, which are, I don't like any of the battlefield tapped lands. They kind of bum me out, and I don't think in any completed draft deck, the Triome is a very high priority. Like, if you told me to build optimal versions of all of the, like the decks I think are viable in my cube, I don't think any of them would include Triomes. I think they would never make it into any of my optimal 40-card deck lists because you just want the Shocklands instead. But you don't always get the Shocklands. And having a Triome basically function as three different Shocklands in terms of satisfying the conditions for Fetchlands to make sure you can always fetch up your given color pair, I think is worth... The lower power level in the deck to run a card in the cube that, for the draft consideration, has that flexibility. That's the thing I I try to advocate for sometimes. Is that like people will say, "Oh, this card's garbage; you never want in my deck. Why would I put it in my cube?" And it's like, well, you'd put it in your cube because you don't always get to draft your perfect deck. And giving your players options to audible into different things, to take open picks, to stay flexible, gives them more more decisions to make in the in the draft that are more challenging. To your point.
2: Right, I mean, designing a cube is not. It doesn't have to be about just putting the best cards together. Like, why would you put a worse version
0: of a card? Right, right, in right. Your so, cube? percent I didn't say best. Pretend like best for whatever someone's individual cube goals are. Right. Like, if if we take the idea of like objective power level out of the question completely. Like, I'm building my nothing but chairs in their arts cube, and I think that the archetypes I've come up with for my cube full of cards that have chairs in their art this cube is not this particular card is not
2: stools thrones
0: right yeah this one's got a stool on it not a chair so it's not a high pick but but, you know (laughs) but maybe it's an artifact and so it goes in multiple decks like i best was was a bad choice of words i mean best for whatever that person's individual goals are. well
2: but no i think i think your point makes sense that the the fact that you sometimes have to struggle and, like, choose between a more flexible, worse card and a more powerful, more committal card is a lot of what's really fun about a draft. And I I think, you know, this is something we talked about a few weeks ago uh, that we both really enjoyed, uh, Brian David Marshall's discussion on limited resources about why bad cards are fun and, like, why playing a, quote-unquote, worse set, uh, like a less powerful set, is a lot of fun, that that was a real, real tension where you were not sure if you were actually going to even hit playables. And in so many recent limited environments, and in, uh, if you're going to design a cube, it's very easy for this to happen as well, where you're just going to end up with tons of playables. So the kind of like 23rd card is not even a consideration because you're going to end up with 28 playables. That's definitely something that I personally think about when designing my cube is. I kind of want to make that part of the, the tension where, where there are these more flexible cards that bridge multiple archetypes and might end up in your deck because you do need to be able to hit uh, a number of cards.
0: I think one of my opinions that has changed most about cube over time is my understanding of the overall arc of the power level in a cube. Like when I, my my first introduction to cube was like, Oh, it's a flat power level. Like every card is good. So you just get to make more decisions about which cards you want to play. And, you know, you're never stuck with junky cards, which sounds appealing in the abstract, but for all the reasons we've mentioned, if the power level is actually flat, then that really makes the draft kind of a... I mean, it takes a lot of interest out of the draft to just be like, well, all these cards are good. I can kind of pick any color pair I want and just kind of force a deck and just end up with a bunch of strong playables because they're all flexible or whatever. Having that tension, having some of those cards that are stronger or weaker or have lower floors or higher ceilings really makes the draft more interesting. Or, you know, good, good
2: picks earlier in the draft because they're worse but more flexible. I think that's an awesome tension.
0: Yeah. The one other thing I want to mention here before we wrap up is something you alluded to very briefly, which is cards that take up very little space in the cube but can have a profound impact on the available drafted decks. And you were kind of talking about build-arounds and how like if you just include a couple cards that care about artifacts or that care about plus one plus one counters or something, then you can have somebody draft a deck that is looks very different in the same color pair is maybe using of cards that are more generic, but with these, addition of a few cards, the the deck changes completely. I found that to be true, even in the most extreme sense, that there are a couple cards in my cube that, again, would probably never be in any of my optimal 40-card builds of any of my draftable decks in my cube, but I think for their presence, make entire archetypes possible to be drafted. And some of them are, like, more traditional build-arounds. Like, I would put something like Upheaval in this category, um, which is a very powerful card. It probably is a 40-card deck somewhere that has Upheaval in it that I would count as one of the best decks in my cube. But there's also cards like Golos, which I I replaced Wormco Engine for Golos, which I think we talked about that change on this on, this, on this show. And on this very show? And it's really show? because... Not this episode of this show. On this podcast. On this... Some, some episode in the past. On this very podcast? But uh, you're trolling me, boy. A little bit. Being a goblin or a troll, dark. Tw- anyway, <laughs> Golos's presence in a cube list means that some players that want to draft a five-color deck can do so, or they can stretch from a three-color deck into a five-color deck and just like have that little additional depth. And I really, I, I will very often. I'm very often willing to give up a slot. And I say give up a slot because Golos is not on power level, a card I'm interested in running, but I'm willing to, you know, make my card 359 cards that are on power level cards that I think are worth running because that card does such interesting things in the draft in that it makes people draft very differently if they value that card and get it and decide they're going to sort of go that direction. And so I like cards like that, even though they are... Sometimes they're not working in to serve my stated goals of, you know, optimizing aggro midrange and control and making my deck kind of the most powerful fair strategy cube that you can possibly have goals are there any cards like that in your cube like single cards that you think oftentimes don't get there but sometimes will change your entire draft just by just on the back of one card
2: i'm gonna have to bring up the list i think there are a million
0: so like i said i i I like to try and strike a little bit of a balance
2: where any given deck is usually going to be composed of a couple little synergies, so it's not like you're going all in on a couple build-arounds, but you're emphasizing one way or another, because I really just want to add as much depth to the draft as possible. But definitely some things like Master Thopterist and Joira and basically all of the other commanders that I've ever built that I've just (laughs) jammed into my cube.
0: I was going to say the one that really comes to mind for me is Archfiend of Ifnir. That one has a really good floor, but that's a card where it's like if I get that early-ish I'm going to really prioritize stuff with cycling or discard effects quite a bit higher than I would otherwise and you can end up with a cycling deck in your cube when you have no other cycling support but Archfiend of Vífnir gets there and there's plenty of cycling cards that are just playable on their own as a baseline that you can all of a sudden have a whole deck that comes out of nowhere.
2: Archfiend of Vífnir is a weird personal favorite it is a weird outlier in terms of power level in my cube. It's been on the watch list and in the cube since I built it, and it's always just stayed there. Um, Don't cut it, but I think it's. it's fine. I think that's one of the fun things about cube, also that you can like really lean into supporting something that is otherwise maybe weaker in constructed or in whatever other format you might play it. But you can also sort of tone things down, and I think you legitimately need to work a little bit to to make Arch- Archfiend of Ithneir really really strong in my cube, uh, and that's been fun.
0: Yeah, like that's a card that sometimes it's kind of broken and it's like, well, you you did it, you know? (laughs) And I I don't know. I think it's it's okay to have a card that sometimes is broken because somebody really committed and, you know, made something work and adjusted their pick orders and got the cycling deck that has Archfiend in it.
2: You want players to feel like they got there sometimes.
0: Yeah, I'm accepting of some non-games when someone really gets there on some kind of archetype or synergy. I think that's a perfectly acceptable part of the variance of magic. All right. We got to call it there. It's getting late. You got to pack up for your big move to your new house. It's very exciting stuff. Thank you for listening to lucky paper radio this uh, next week. We're going to be bringing you an episode all about commander legends, where we will be joined by a special guest, which you will find out about next week. And so between now and then, go check out our Commander Legends survey, which again, I'll put link in the show notes, but the actual link is luckypaper.co slash survey slash CMR. So you can find our survey there. We'll probably have it open for a couple of weeks, maybe a week and a half or so. So if you are testing cards from this set, please give us a response. I'm especially interested to hear from people that are playing pauper and peasant cubes, because I think this is a good set for y'all, where it might not be for some of the rest of us, but we will see. That's why we do the survey. That's it. That's the end of the show. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Anthony, for talking about magic with me.
2: I've been staring at Decree of Justice all episode. Is that Corona the False God on this rock?
0: Yeah, of course it is. That's the shadow of Corona.
2: Huh. I wonder what that's about.
0: Decree of Justice is a card I've always wanted an original foil of for absolutely no uh, reason, other than it's pretty. I'm not going to play it anywhere. I can't imagine I would put that in anything ever, but it is very pretty looking. I love the art. Love old foils, so maybe I'll just, you know, get one. Hey, you know what? It's a collectible trading card game. That is part of the game. I came very close last week. I I did pick up some cards for my, my other cube, which we'll talk about some at some point on this show this week on uh online. And I had in my cart, I had added, based on our conversation last week, an original foil route. Just because I do think route is a very cool card and it has an old frame original foil with some weirdly graphic art, and I was like, I kinda want this, but I don't think it's worth $11, so I put it in the save for later section, and maybe I'll get that wrapped for myself someday.